Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. In this week's episode, we dive into Combat Search and Rescue, or CSAR for short. It's a mission unlike any other. Air Force Rescue has a proud history and heritage reaching back to World War II. It continued throughout Korea and gained broader recognition during Vietnam given the amazing acts of courage and valor. It's continued in every single conflict up through the present day. And that includes Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's a big question being debated right now. Everyone recognizes the critical importance of CSAR. It's a moral imperative to try and get everyone home safe. But given the increased focus on the Pacific and a potential conflict with China, the way in which we execute the mission needs to evolve. Bottom line, those are huge ranges, a lot of water, and serious air defenses. Helicopters don't do well with those variables, and it's far from a simple discussion because what we're really talking about is the expansion of the potential mission envelope. We'll still likely fight smaller conflicts where regional basing isn't a problem, and operations in Europe similarly lead themselves to helicopter operations. And if that wasn't enough to keep folks up at night, the CSAR community is also trying to pivot from two decades of counterinsurgency where folks and equipment were flown super hard. We touched upon some of this last year in a few episodes, but given how important this is, we wanted to circle back and see how the thinking has advanced. And there's no one better for insights better than the operators themselves. So with that, I am proud to introduce Colonel Russ Bones Cook, 23rd Wing Commander from the heart of the Air Force Rescue at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. Uh, thanks for inviting. I appreciate being here. Our next guest is an A-10 Weapons School graduate, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Tizzle Parrish. He recently completed command at the 6th Combat Training Squadron at Nellis Air Force Base and is currently serving as a National Defense Fellow at the Congressional Research Service here in Washington, D.C. Hey, thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. And finally, one of our Air Force fellows, Mike Mongo Kingry, he's joining us for the conversation. He's an active duty Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who just wrapped up commanding the 56th Rescue Squadron Aviano Air Base in Italy, flying HH-60s. We've got him here with us this year as part of the Mitchell team. Happy to be here. Thanks, Slick. Now, before we dive into our panel, I'd like to set the scene for our listeners. The audio you're about to hear is from May 2nd, 1999, in the skies over Serbia, from Lieutenant Colonel Dave Goldfein, the future 21st Chief of Staff of the Air Force, flying a mission over the Balkans as the commander of the famed Triple Nickel, the 555th Fighter Squadron, out of Aviano Air Base in Italy. In the audio, Goldfein is Hammer 4. He takes a hit from a Serbian surface-to-air missile, and this sets the chain of events into motion that will see Goldfein evade Serbian soldiers on the ground throughout the night, followed by a daring pre-dawn pickup by Air Force rescue assets, including MH-60s and MH-53 helicopters, pararescuemen, and A-10s. So take a listen. Visual, we're passing. Hammer 3 is Mud 3 North. Three 
listening to that it is some intense audio and as a fighter pilot that's the last situation you want to find yourself in i'm really struck at how everyone falls into their roles and starts to support hammer four as soon as they know he's been hit and has a problem so for our panel what comes to mind as you listen to this audio Slick, I'll go first here. I think I've probably heard this audio about a dozen times. And to hear the future chief of staff of the Air Force, he's really calm during the whole thing. But to hear him tell his wingmen, like, hey, start finding me, boys, like even to this day, man, gives me absolute goosebumps. So I just came from command in the 56th and Aviano. So we had the nickel there. And one of the things we did is we put a picture of General Goldfein of him being repatriated back to Aviano. He's still covered in camo in dirt on the runway there. And when I put on there on the picture, start finding me boys. And that's the last thing our crew see as they step out for training missions. So pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, I think the thing that strikes me first is how calm he remains in the immediate action after the hit. The audio is tough to hear, but it, both him and his wingman have this level of calm that almost seems inappropriate given the gravity of the situation. And as a pilot, I also start to go to empathize with both then Lieutenant Colonel Goldfein and his wingman as to what they are doing in that time and what they're thinking. It's obviously a situation you'd never want to find yourself in, but once you're there, you better hope you're not underprepared. So uh, I couldn't help myself but share flying my immediate action checklist and start thinking of what I needed to do as potential mishap pilot or as on-scene command in a situation like this. For me, I think you hear in his response, there's no question in his mind what's coming next and that people are coming to get him and that the fight is just starting for that recovery. So there's that confidence in there in his voice and it's that confidence in his team that they are coming to bring him home. All right. So, you know, all of us here, we understand that there's an ethos in the American military of no man left behind. So how would you explain that to our audience and how does that tie into the CSR mission? I think your community's motto really speaks to the power of this. And that motto is these things we do that others may live. So what does that creed actually look like to an operator and a commander in rescue? I think that's a good good question, Slick. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's really a pledge to America's fighting men and women that anytime that we send a fighter pilot into the merge or we send a Marine to hit the beach or a special operator to go on a hit, that we're going to have a dedicated rescue force of very uniquely trained people who are ready to go if they're having the worst day of their lives. So I think it really speaks to that commitment. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up here too is I think I'd be remiss, but it's 
this month is the 50th anniversary of Operation Homecoming. So it's been 50 years uh, to, to this month that we brought back almost 600 POWs from captivity in North Vietnam. So really solidifying that promise that we make to isolated personnel. And that heritage for rescue is all the way back to Vietnam, where the Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Service is the precursor to modern rescue squadrons. You know, they rescued over 4,000 people in Vietnam. And that came with a cost. You know, over 70 CSAR personnel were lost there, 45 aircraft. I think it's really a manifestation of what that means to the entire department and to the nation that we have this force willing to bring those people back. Yeah, it's a powerful motto, and I think it resonates. Any operator hears it. Obviously, it's internalized in the CSAR force, but it humanizes the mission a little bit in a philosophical shift, if you will, because everybody's training in their weapon system to go out there to do the mission, usually including those offensive missions of killing targets, breaking things. When you say that others may live and you focus on a survivor or a group of people that are isolated that you need to bring home, it shifts the perspective a little bit and towards our brothers and sisters in arms and the responsibility we have and the nation has to bring them home. That motto drives all of our airmen and not just the operators. We tend to focus on them, but what you'll see is in the maintainers and the combat support airmen, every one of them knows exactly what they're doing and why and how important it is. So it is the motivator behind everything that we do in rescue. You brought it up in talking about Operation Homecoming and the incredible work of the Jolly Green Giants and Sandys during the Vietnam War. For the last two decades, Air Force Rescue has been focused on other areas of personal recovery. So, Mongo, can you shed some light on the difference between that and CSAR? And what are your thoughts on how the Air Force needs to pivot to meet the pure fight? Yeah, absolutely, Slick. So in the past couple of decades here in the post-9-11 wars, we, Rescue has not been doing a lot of the traditional rescue mission. They've been pretty few and far between of the traditional single objective, down pilot, isolated behind enemy lines. But we have been extremely busy. So in Iraq, doing a ton of special operations support, particularly during the surge time frame there. So providing dedicated rescue to special ops as they go after high value targets in their capture kill missions which means for us, they became pretty well enmeshed and integrated with those type of folks. So we got Bones here, we got Colonel Cook on the line. He uh, cut his teeth a lot there in Iraq too, to include a mission that he flew out of Balad, going up to Crit, and I think about a quarter mile visibility to pick up some British SAS guys who had gotten in a bad way up there. And the 160th actually declined the mission because the weather was too bad. So Bones went up there and picked him up. I think if you look through his OPR, he actually has Hero of to Crit written on one of his OPRs. We'll have to check that out later, but I think it speaks to the uh, what we were doing there in Iraq. And on the flip side of that, on Afghanistan, really taking the Kazabak mission to heart. So establishing a legacy there under the Pedro call sign of unescorted going into a tick, fighting our way in, picking up an American who has gunshot wounds, multiple amputees, and getting them back to medical care within that golden hour, which means that our guys are, we got pretty well versed in the terminal area as well. So dealing with threats in and around the objective area, doing really helicopter things like high, high DA, high density altitude, hover ops, brownouts, all that kind of stuff. And all that's going to translate to the peer fight. But I think the biggest thing there is the combat experience over two decades is something you can't put a price tag on. So that's going to absolutely translate over to the, uh, to the peer fight. There are things that we're pivoting to just like the rest of the Air Force. So really getting to how we force package, how we employ layered effects, whether they be kinetic or non-kinetic effects, how we achieve localized air superiority, make some of these missions happen, and then really getting toward how we mitigate some of these surface-to-air threats to make us viable in a peer fight. Yeah, Mongo, those are awesome points. And the rescue community did some awesome work, and we got to see it firsthand as well from the other platforms that were in and around in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I think one important thing to point out is we're in the middle of this shift, in the middle, at the end, whatever, but it's been a few years or a year, and we're steadily trying to transition, and this is a bigger kind of effort. We tended to have to go to a pickup game mentality in a lot of ways. And you know what? The guys who did it, they did it 
awesome. But I think as we shift to the Pacific and we shift to these larger scale combat conditions, I think an effort across the force, across the services and across the Air Force is to be able to try and plan to something more specific and not rely on our ability to create a pickup game. Because given the threat, the level of contested environment we're going to be dealing with in a pure competitor, a pickup game's not going to cut it. I'm just keep it there. I just want to, I want to make sure that Mongo knows that a hero to crit did not make it on my OPR and that never happened. But, uh, <laughs> that, I'll just give a harumph. That would have been a great action result impact. Yeah, I thought so. Promote now. <laughs> yeah, I got to share that I just love the camaraderie of everybody that's on this podcast here. And I just want to quickly say to our audience, if you are unfamiliar with the Nat Geo series called Inside Combat Rescue, it really gives an idea of the concept of the golden hour and how important it is to get any injured personnel medical attention within one hour and obviously get them out of harm's way. So really interesting to see. I want to transition quickly, though, back to Colonel Cook, because, sir, you recently led the Flying Tigers of the 23rd Wing as a lead airman on a dynamic force employment to Guam. So can you tell us a little bit about the lead wing concept and how rescue might be employed in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, the lead wing concept, largely true to Air Combat Command, but Pacific Air is running a very similar concept. And the idea is how do you rapidly open new locations to conduct combat operations? Typically, any type of operations require a new location. In addition to that, how do you conduct it under the new concept of agile combat employment? And we tend to focus on aircraft, but really the airmen and agile combat support airmen is going to make this possible. And so as a lead wing, we're able to rapidly deploy overnight, anytime, anywhere to go conduct operations. One of the reasons the 23rd wing was picked by Air Combat Command to be a lead wing is because of rescue airmen. Rescue airmen are used to conducting um, con operations that are very similar to what we're trying to do in the Air Force. And our airmen have led us in this wing and led us to be the first certified to do it. So we did take the opportunity, we went out to Pacific, we operated at Guam, Palau, and other partners around the region to look at some new personal recovery and rescue operations. Specifically, how do you work with partners? Um, the Pacific is a big AO. If you're looking at a globe, the Pacific is about half the globe. And so an area of operations that big, not everything is highly contested. And we have a very small combat rescue force. It can't be everywhere. So how do we preserve our combat rescue force in the most contested areas, keep them forward, and then conduct combat recovery operations elsewhere? So we actually worked with Palau Nationals to go out and recover people by having pararescue teams engage with them and just doing some things in some different ways. How do we attack <laughs> this mission set in ways that we haven't done previously or we didn't do in Afghanistan or Iraq. So a lot of opportunities there. It is still developing. There's teams out there right now that are operating and training on new concepts. This is a long road. We're not going to have all the answers overnight, but over the next three to five years, we have to develop new concepts to attack this problem. Yeah. Thanks, sir, for adding that. I, I wanted to also understand the HH-60 Whiskey recently accomplished its first operational saves at a deployed location. So can you provide any insights on this mission? And as I see it, it really speaks to the broadening mission scope, which is everything from low-intensity ops to a full-up peer fight. Yeah, combat rescue is getting like the rest of the Air Force. We're transitioning to the strategic peer fight. But at the same time, the old fight hasn't changed at all for us. So we're finding ways to make space and time to do both. That H-60 Whiskey is one of the most impressive things I've seen in my career. That is an aircraft that delivered, got through initial operational capability and went to combat on time. That is not a thing that gets done a lot in the Air Force. And it was driven by that motto that others may live. And 
the maintainers and the logisticians and all the people who took a brand new jet, all the issues that come with a brand new jet, all the logistical issues and supply issues and work through every single problem with that one timeline in place going, hey, we need to be combat ready by this time. And when they started, we didn't have a deployment, but by the end of it, they were in theater. And so it goes the whole team on getting that done and being innovative. H60 Whiskey, because of supply chain issues, had a hoist cable problem. And our maintainers went and found solutions with hoist cables off other aircraft to make sure that we were still combat ready. Uh, so it just took a lot of effort and it took a lot of time and innovation from folks and a lot of uh, multiple commanders along the chains in multiple different areas. So very impressive for them. And then the team that's out there right now, they were combat ready and we were not going to deploy unless they were full up ready. And uh, I think they proved how capable they are in a theater that is very large and it is very difficult to operate within that theater and move the distance they do and they are unique and their niche capability that no one else has so very very proud of them very impressed by what they've done sir thanks for breaking that down for us it's time for some fixed wing conversation so tizzle i want to bring you in here as a sandy qualified a10 pilot can you explain to us a little bit about the sandy mission and the unique qualities that make the a10 and a10 pilot so well suited for this mission Yes, like absolutely. You know, Sandy is a legacy call sign. It is synonymous with combat search and rescue qualified fixed wing pilot. It goes back to Vietnam War and the A-1 Sky Raider when they started using that call sign. And I'll just say like between the, the A-10 community and the H-60 community, we're very close. I think the mindsets are very much aligned and when it comes to this mission and to include the HC-130s and everybody participates in CSAR. But from the Sandy perspective, a Sandy upgrade is a unique upgrade. It requires a unique skill set based on the characteristics of the mission. To break it down, Sandy-1 is the flight lead. We can operate in a two-ship, a four-ship, more depending on the time distance problem when you're talking about potentially the Pacific. And Sandy One's also oftentimes the rescue mission commander, so has that authority over the entire CSAR package or task force. His or her primary job, once they've received notification they're in the battle space, is to search out, locate, authenticate the survivor. They're going to gather data on threats, terrain. They're going to develop and pass a game plan for ingress, for pickup, for egress, to include the planning of fires in the terminal area or anywhere else in the battle space that could threaten any member of the task force to include helicopters and particularly the survivor. Sandy One has primary custody of the survivor that can be handed off, but Sandy One has the plan and Sandy One's probably gonna be the first one talking or the last one talking to the survivor to ensure that he's assessing the condition, passing information on any injuries, even to the point of providing any assistance with self-aid, coach them through their role and signaling for the helicopters or the rescue vehicle to pick them up. And then Sandy 2 is the deputy, Sandy 1's assistant, helping with communications, which oftentimes are very difficult. And they're also usually coordinating fires and helping to enable a safe ingress and egress for the rescue vehicles. We also have Sandy 3 and 4. They are primarily the rescort element, as we call them, helping the helicopters get in and out of the area and providing those immediate fires. And it's important to point out that a Sandy qualified A-10 pilot is capable of usually performing all of these roles, and they could flow to perform any one of these roles, regardless of their position in the flight, because the CSAR mission is very dynamic. In terms of the A-10, you're right, it's well-suited for the mission. It has multiple radios, including the lightweight airborne radio system, or the LARS radio, which has particular ability to assist with search and rescue and communicate with survivor radios. The A-10 has long loiter time, can fly at slow speeds, 
It can quickly maneuver to provide fires. Some of those characteristics are important for helicopter escort, which is at times difficult for fast jets. And then that, that wide variety of air-to-ground munitions to threats in the vicinity of either the helicopters or the survivor. But I will say that what makes the A-10 so well-suited to CSAR has really been decades in the making. It's the mentality of the pilots. It's a close air support platform, foundationally, right, the A-10. So operators do tend to have an air-to-ground mindset. They're accustomed to orienting off terrain features, to finding smaller, difficult-to-find targets, to finding friendlies on the ground, and flying low and slow when needed in, in the vicinity of lighter threats. So I think that the close air support mission really helps to train to approach problems starting at the target and working out from there. That's how we build nine lines that targets the central point of reference. The difference in a CSAR is you still have a lot of these same characteristics of needing to be ground oriented, but you're starting with a survivor and working out from there to build the game plan, how to mitigate threats, using some of those forward air controller airborne competencies to leverage firepower among the package, and then provide that helicopter escort to uh, Jolly or whoever it would be as the rescort vehicle in and out from the survivor. And of course, the GAU-8 helps. Nice. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Tizzle, that was awesome. And for the audience here, you just got a weapon school instructor level briefing on the Sandy mission. So this is pretty incredible. One thing that I have for you is how do you see the mission evolving as different aircraft come into the fold? The Sandy mission existed before the A-10 and it will exist after they are retired. So what are the specific factors you think are important to highlight no matter what airframe is involved? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's actually a question the community's been pondering now at various times in the past decade. In about 2013, 2014, that was the first threat of divestment or the second or the third, I can't remember over the, the 40 <laughs> years, but no, that was the last time that we, we actually looked at that exact problem. The 422 test squadron out at Nellis, along with the A-10 weapon school known as the Trough and the 66 whips, they began running scenarios and putting other platforms in the Sandy roll and started upgrading other pilots to be able to perform the mission. And that was to assess various capabilities and limitations of other fighter platforms and their pilots to execute the CSAR mission. We primarily use Strike Eagle and F-16, uh, from my knowledge, and I was, in, I was able to fly on a couple of these missions. I know they did more. But we learned a lot. Some of what we learned was surprising, and some was not so surprising. First off, pilots from other fighter platforms have shown a great level of respect for the mission. They're very capable, and it really just comes down to taking the time to train and cultivate a cadre of CSAR-qualified pilots outside of the A-10 world. And in a multi-role fighter community in particular, that's a time and resource problem that's in conflict with their other missions, right? So, But to the question of what factors or characteristics are important, the traits that make a good CSAR pilot or a good Sandy, those are trainable competencies. It takes time, but I think being able to transition to that ground-focused, survivor-centric mentality is probably the most important trait for a CSAR pilot to have, and that's regardless of the platform. Throughout the fighter community, you got great pilots and aviators who can process information, make decisions, and work multiple lines of effort simultaneously. All those are good traits to have. So I think there's definitely opportunity out there. It's just going to be a matter of deciding. And that's obviously out of my hands. But in terms of equipment, which is important to point out too, I'd say probably communications capabilities. So the number of radios can certainly assist. And some aircraft are limited in that regard because there is a lot of information and the need to switch to different frequencies and communicate. The ability to interface with a survivor locator communication system like the C-cell radio. And then also the ability to provide timely and accurate weapons effects and then fall into a escort role for the 
rescue vehicles. So those are big, important factors that I would point out. Obviously, you ask any other Sandy qualified weapons officer, and they'll give you potentially a different answer, but that's, that's the tradition. Thanks for breaking that down. And bottom line is it really just boils down to really having this mindset from growing up with close air support, forward air control, controlling the scenario, obviously bleeds right over into the Sandy mission. So again, I think it's just a mindset that that you grow up with. It's a culture that you have within the squadron. So that's got to be taught. So I do want to open this next question up to everyone. Given that the 2022 National Defense Strategy clearly highlights China as the pacing threat, how do we accomplish CSAR in that type of threat environment? So we know the PLA has significant capability in the Western Pacific, and the geography adds to the complexity. I'll kind of get started here. So like one of the first things we can address is I think we need to temper the threat a little bit in the Pacific as well. So obviously the West Pacific is going to be a very difficult place to operate. So if you're day one in the Taiwan Straits, that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be a pretty hairy place to be operating. But likewise, there's not some magical line out there in the Western Pacific that if you cross it over and you're not fifth gen, you automatically burst into flames. So I think at some point we're somewhere along that spectrum there for what we can expect at different points during the conflict in a peer flight. But regardless of that, there's going to be certain attributes that we're going to need to double down on for rescue that are going to help us in a peer fight, particularly against China. One of them, and I think Colonel Cook brought it up, but rescue, I think, is inherently able to employ ACE and be truly dispersed. You can take a two ship or three ship of 60s out in a soccer field with a pile of MREs, water, a radio, and some gas, and they're going to be able to do some dispersed operations. And you can also make personal recovery and CSAR pretty exportable also. So once again, the hot take here is that the Pacific's really big. So Colonel Cook once again brought it up, but you can put particularly our guardian angel element or somewhat force enablers, we can put them on a Filipino uh, fishing boat, maybe put them on an underwater asset, and now you've expanded that capacity a little bit there in the Western Pacific. And then I think the third item is to really increase our survivability of our isolated personnel. So making them viable for longer in a peer fight, whether that's pushing them real time or near real time evasion information, intel info, making them you know food, water procurement, make them survivable longer so that when we do have periods where we have an opportunity with localized air superiority to come pick them up that we're ready to go. And then I think the final thing I'd say is raising the rescue IQ of the entire force. So we can't just have rescue expertise resident in just these handful of assets, but particularly with our fifth gen guys, people are going to be in the threat ring, making sure they're well-versed on CSAR so they can help out when that event happens to ensure the uh, follow-on missions of success. Yeah, those are great points, Mongo. I think Slick, that's the million dollar question right now. And the good news is we got a lot of smart professionals, both in the test community, in the exercise divisions, on the staff, wings like Colonel Cook's wing, who are going out and trying to exercise this, trying to develop TTPs, trying to figure out where the barriers are and where we need to overcome and do a little more work. They're getting after the modern tactics, uh, material solutions, and then planning to go out and execute that muscle movement. So I think still, though, where we're at, if you put together all the after action reports and TTPs and try to spelled out on a storyboard. There's too many scenarios that could play out for us to be able to say, yeah, we're ready. But Mamanga points out, makes some really good points. We got to prepare the force. I think there needs to be a higher CSAR IQ. And that kind of came up in the initial clip of General Goldfein. Like anybody who hears that is thinking to themselves, what would I do from a pilot perspective? That's not just me, I hope. But I think there's three things that I would highlight. Location authentication systems. I think that there's obviously some things in the pipe in terms of development, but the joint requirements that kind of went into C-Cell, I think we're going to have to evolve from there. I think there's some limitations. I think we're looking probably at multiple redundant systems to give us resiliency against the contested environment, allow us to locate and authenticate a survivor. When we're contested in one area, we have other options. And then when that risk level is high, of course, that 
timely proof of life is going to be the number one trigger for being able to launch a recovery effort. I think training in TTPs, like I mentioned, we're already pursuing that line of effort. But to your previous question, Slick, I think you can't really train the next generation of our task force without identifying who's going to be the fixed wing component of that. And then jointness, I think bringing in to it the very real fact that I hope I paid attention in water survival training, right? <laughs> and that I probably will be happy to see the Navy or the Marine Corps pull up with a boat if I were an isolated personnel in the Pacific. Um, we need to be able to really get together and go through the motions, uh, both on, from a C2 perspective and from a, a functional operational execution with the assets perspective, to know that our joint services can work together, leverage capabilities, assign roles, and know who's going to do what when the time comes. Yeah, I think what these guys are definitely hitting around is I, rescue, combat rescue has to be more integrated within the total Air Force and a joint force and our partners. Um, as mentioned, you start with Goldfiend's video and audio. That was a team, a whole squadron that was definitely ready for combat rescue. They were ready because we had multiple years in the Cold War where that was what we did. We got ready for this whole piece. The last 20 years, we've lost it. That muscle has completely atrophied. And the entire Air Force has to grow up a little bit about what a peer fight looks like and that we're going to lose assets and saying it's going to be 30 days before we get you is not acceptable. We're coming to get you right now. We're going to have to train you up. You are going to have to get ready as a unit, every single unit, and what your role is in that. Combat rescue absolutely cannot do it by itself. In the last 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, if I couldn't get a bomb off a jet, I just raged in with the 50 cows and I'll take care of it myself. That's not going to work in the Pacific theater. It's not going to work in the Europe theater. It has to be integrated completely with whatever weapon system is up there. And as I said, we... There's other weapon systems that have to take the lead from the A-10s. It has to go into their dock statements. We have to reintegrate those airmen into the mission set, and the airmen matter more than the airframes. I hear this all the time. X aircraft could do CAS, close air support. X aircraft can do sandy duties. No, it's not true. No aircraft can do anything. Only the airmen can if they're trained to do it. And so we have to roll the clock back on some of the ways we train our, our pilots and crews across the Air Force so that they are actually a part of the combat rescue team. Otherwise, it's just not going to get done. So that's a pretty critical area. And then working with partners and joint teams. These are big areas of operations that are, are not going to be able to be handled by a very small combat rescue force. So how do we bring in the rest of our teammates and our partners in unique and innovative ways to make sure that they're fully integrated in that personal recovery system? I think that's the path to success. We've got a lot of, a lot of ways to go to get there. Well, guys, like we often do on the Aerospace Advantage, we're getting tight on time, and I am throwing down right now, Mongo, we've got to do a follow-up to this podcast because there's so much more to talk about on the subject. So I just want to ask this last question. What do you think CSAR professionals of the future look like? And I'm talking about everyone involved on the rescue platform, Sandy Cruz and everyone else. What is this going to look like as we think about threats or fighting in the Indo-Pacific? Good question, Slick. CSAR and rescue in general and recovery is a joint requirement, but I really feel like the Air Force rescue community really are the torchbearers of what that looks like in the contested fight. And whether that's Sandy, whether that's our King brothers and sisters there in the HG-130, Jolly, or our guardian angels, like that responsibility really falls to us to make sure that expertise is carried on to the next generation. Bones brought it up, but it really is the airmen, not really the aircraft. So making sure that that corporate knowledge moves on despite or regardless of what the, uh, the the next technology ends up being. And in the past, we I think we had sufficient capacity in the Air Force with the number of platforms that we had that we allowed some specialization where you could say, this is very my very niche 
weapon system, my very niche mission set. But now with fewer platforms, I think the entire rescue IQ for the Air Force needs to be elevated. So everyone has more of a game in this fight. And, and I'll speak personally here too, but we talked about the moral imperative of rescue, but there's also, I think, a pragmatic part of rescue too. Like we're in a, we're in a peer fight here and we're going to want those pilots and aircrew back if they do end up getting shot down. You know, there's a very utilitarian view here. This is not World War II where we have dozens of pilot training bases just pumping people out every month and tons of pilots. These are very highly trained pretty exquisite operators that we're going to need back and into the fight from a very utilitarian view. But last thing I'll say, you know, come off a command in Aviano right now, I'll tell you that the future looks bright for rescue though. Like the young people that we're getting, whether they're pilots, whether they're special missions, aviators, whether they're support people, man, they are fired up to be in rescue and they're good. Like they're better than I was as a lieutenant, which isn't saying much. Bones, you knew me as lieutenant, so maybe that's not a great compliment, but Man, they're fired up to be in rescue. They're going to carry that expertise, and they're really going to embody that ethos of these things we do that others may live. Yeah, it's good stuff, Mongo. And I'm also optimistic. I think, like we said, it's the operator. It's the person. It's the culture. It is the ability to train and learn how to do this, to pass it on from the A-10 pilots, who, by the way, are all, for the most part, going to, many of them will stay in the Air Force. They will go to other platforms. They will bring with them their expertise. But I think in terms of what we need is we need to know what the plan is to be able to do that is, right? And I know Slick had mentioned the Viper and its many missions and how you organize who does what and maybe you set aside a certain unit who, who's tasked with that very specific mission. So that's the higher level strategic planning piece. I think there's a lot of very, very cool, very capable technology, and it depends on what timeline you're looking at. As we get more and more F-35s on board and we potentially field these autonomous combat platforms, we're bringing into the Air Force a lot of capability. Man-on-man teaming, new sensors, new weapons. I would just say that we need to keep in mind throughout all that, that we need to keep CSAR in as part of that equation. If you're going to send an unmanned platform out in front that's teamed with a human system behind, make sure that unmanned platform can talk to a survivor, can potentially find, has a sensor to be able to locate, authenticate. As long as we keep that in mind, it's very possible, I think, to do that with all the great things that we're doing in research and development. So keeping CSAR in the back of our minds or at the forefront of our minds throughout this process is going to make the force we need for the future. First of all, I want to agree with Mongo. The CSAR professionals of the future are all much better officers than he was when he was in lieutenant. <laughs> I think that's an important point to make. But what they, what our future officers are is an enlisted crew who are just as important or maintainers, all these pieces, they are standing on the shoulders of the folks who came before them. So you can't forget the 20 years of combat experience and how well this team did as they transitioned to a new mission and the fire that's still in their belly. Uh, walk into a rescue group and tell them that we don't think you could do rescue in the Pacific and watch how quickly you get thrown out of that room. They're here to win. And uh, that team is very focused and we need to give them the opportunities to integrate our A-10 folks. No one is passionate about their mission as them. And no one has been as successful the last 20 years as them. So integrating them in the force for the future and then giving them opportunities to keep those skills up. If you don't do anything, those skills will be gone in three to five years. Now, I don't think there's any mission that's tougher than combat rescue. If you think putting a weapon on a target is hard, we'll try pulling someone safely off of a target. It's about as difficult as this. It moves at fast pace and fast speed. So we need the best airmen who are highly trained and have been given the opportunity to train to do it. So they're on a good path right now. They're built on the shoulders of guys like Mongo and Tizzle, and they're looking forward to seeing what they do in the future. And they'll do a lot of things that I haven't even begun to think of. So it'll be good. Well, gentlemen, I cannot say thank you enough. Thank you all for being here, and I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Slick, for uh, doing this, and thanks for Tizzle and uh, Colonel Cook. Really appreciate you guys being on the podcast here. Yeah, thanks to Slick and Mitchell Institute, Mongo, for inviting me, and uh, Colonel Cook, great talking with you. Yeah, it's like Mongo Tizzle. Great hearing you guys talk, and I appreciate uh, keeping the fire going and making sure that this mission lives on for a long time. 
With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.